Thanks to Dan for a perfect introduction to sermon number two, which really is response to a post in this past week's Baptist News Global. For the last five years, I've had the privilege of offering a monthly opinion piece for Baptist News Global. And my piece that was published this past week is called, The Church is Called to Die. I've had a good bit of response from that and a little bit of confusion. What in the world do you mean the church is called to die? Bonhoeffer says when Christ calls us, he bids us to die. What could that mean? Sermon number two is called From Constantine to COVID, the good news for a church in crisis. It's one of the most important events in the, in the history of the Christian church, though many people can hardly identify the name Constantine, much less understand how his conversion to Christianity literally changed the world and the church. In quick review, here is another of Russ's famous timelines to bring you up to speed. Jesus was born in what year? Between 6 and 4 B.C., that's right, Jesus was born before Christ. A mistake was made in the, that's true, a mistake was made in the initial chronology, but comparing the reigns of King Herod and Tiberius Caesar with the biblical account shows that Jesus had to have been born a few years before A.D. 1. Scholars assume that the biblical accounts are roughly accurate regarding the length of Jesus' life, 30 to 33 years, and that he died around the year 30 A.D. Jesus was not the founder of the Christian religion. He and his disciples were all Jewish, and the first followers remained within Judaism and were known as followers of the way. We should probably trace the beginning of Christianity per se to the ministry of the Apostle Paul, whose dramatic Damascus Road conversion occurred within several years after Jesus' crucifixion. Let's call that A.D. 35. The term Christian was not used until the church of Antioch near modern-day Turkey. That was within the first few years after Jesus' death, maybe A.D. 37. The oldest of the Christian scriptures was probably Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica, which dates to around A.D. 50. The oldest of the scriptures, the latest of the scriptures, might be the Gospel of John, maybe around the year 100. Now, I'm boring you with all of these dates because you must understand that Jesus did not say to Peter, upon this rock I will build my church and then start a capital campaign for a building program the next week. Christianity began as a small, subversive movement, not an institution a subversive movement within Judaism, and the break with Judaism only happened gradually, perhaps as a result of Paul's missionary efforts. For the first 300 years of Christianity, Christianity existed as a kind of cult, a sect scorned within Judaism, and then a religious minority persecuted by the Roman Empire. The early Christians were regarded as atheists, because they would not honor Caesar as Lord. Their confession of faith, Jesus is Lord, was a political offense to the empire. So as Christianity slowly grew around the Mediterranean and then into Europe, it became a favorite target of Roman emperors. 
In A.D. 64, Rome suffered a devastating fire, and Emperor Nero blamed the fire on the Christians, instigating the first in a series of persecutions which progressed until inconceivable horrors were visited on the faithful, their deaths becoming gruesome spectacles of entertainment in the Roman Colosseum. Yet all the while, all the while, Christianity was growing. In A.D. 197, Tertullian, an early Christian apologist, wrote a treatise demanding that Christians be allowed the same tolerance as all other religious sects and explaining the growth of the church this way. We spring up in greater numbers the more we are mown down by you. The blood of the Christians is the seed of a new life. With no support from the empire, not even official recognition, without any cultural status of approval, in an ethos of persecution and martyrdom, Christianity flourished across the Mediterranean world and beyond. The church grew because the followers of Jesus were so convinced of his message and his mission, so committed to his way that they were willing literally to be burned and baked and boiled alive for the sake of the gospel. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow, and they did. Many of them literally did. And then came Constantine the great Roman emperor whose conversion to Christianity, surprising, ironic, in A.D. 313, changed everything. Now, the details of that, uh, that conversion are debated by scholars, but one version, the one that I really prefer, says that the night before the great battle of the Milvian Bridge, Constantine had a vision. He saw a cross in the sky a blinding trophy of light, and he heard the words, in this sign, conquer. I hope you understand the irony. In this sign, in the sign of the cross, conquer. And so the next day, Constantine marched into battle with the sign of the cross emblazoned on the swords and shields of his troops, and they slaughtered many, and they won the battle of the Milvian Bridge, which solidified Constantine's control of the entire empire, and then led to his famous Edict of Milan, which first legalized Christianity in the empire. Then in AD 380, the once persecuted cult of Christianity became the official religion of the most powerful empire in the world. You understand the ironic story. Rome killed Jesus, and in 380 it became his religion, became the state religion of the empire. Now, many believe that Constantine's conversion was motivated by political calculation, not religious conviction. It was a means of unifying the empire. There is no doubt that it gave status to the world's then newest religion. As you can imagine, if the emperor was Christian, 
there suddenly became a lot of reasons that you might choose to become a Christian yourself, even if you had never met Jesus. Further, as Rome continued to conquer and terrorize its enemies, many of the fallen were converted at the point of the sword. Now, how much commitment do you have to make to the way of Jesus if you're just trying to save your life? And for 1,700 years, the church's relationship with Constantine has been inseparable from the Christian story. Constantine's stamp of imperial approval, state-sponsored approval, propelled Christianity to become the world's largest religion. But in nations around the world, the melding of church and state, the blending and the confusing of the values of Jesus and the commitments of secular governments, the accommodation of the church to the state, the manipulation of the church by the state, have also been part of our story. Nowhere has this been any more true than it is true in the United States of America. While the nation was founded on the freedom of religion, which also means the freedom from religion for those who choose, and while the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution guarantees that freedom, it cannot be denied that the culture, due to the support of the state, has prioritized Christianity for many years. To cite one example, can you imagine what the church would have looked like today if not for decades of state support in the form of those so-called blue laws which protected Sunday by prohibiting work on Sunday? What if instead the state had chosen Friday to honor the beginning of Jewish Shabbat and the weekend in the United States had become Friday and Saturday, not Saturday and Sunday. That decision would have made Sunday a weekday, a work day. And how many people do you think would have regularly taken time off of work and carved out time for Christian worship? Imagine then what our Jewish colleagues go through, Jewish rabbis, what they have faced for decades, trying to convince their high school students to prioritize Sabbath worship over Friday night football, or their other congregants to prioritize Saturday Sabbath worship over college football. Can you imagine? Do you see how the basic orientation of the culture toward one religion has benefited that religion? If you call it a benefit at all, and that's really the point I'm trying to bring up today, how much has it really benefited the cause of Christ, Christ's call to sacrificial living, the challenge of dying to self, of placing loyalty to God above all other allegiances, how much has it really enhanced an understanding of sacrifice and service which is inseparable from the message of Jesus, when being Christian is something of a default assumption for the culture, when Christianity is something like the de facto religion of the state. Do you understand? If you go to church on Sunday mainly because there's just nothing else to do, is that really commitment? 
If the boss is a deacon at the First Baptist Church, maybe showing up on Sundays won't hurt you as you, as you pursue your next promotion. But Jesus did not call us to take up our resumes and follow. Now the situation we face today is this. The nation is becoming more diverse, more pluralistic, and that is by design. It is the beautiful vision of our founders coming to fruition. As the Statue of Liberty says, standing in the New York Harbor, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Come one, come all. In this daring, melting pot of nations, in this bold environment of freedom that our forebears bravely envisioned, the culture is becoming less white and less Christian and certainly less Protestant. There are understandable anxieties. Change always brings anxiety. But we need to think carefully about what we are actually losing and what we might be gaining instead. Now, the fear of this inevitable, beautiful change is driving the culture war that is tearing us apart. I have serious concern about the future of this country because of this culture war. And where is the church in all of this? Well, some in the church are screaming, they took God out of the schools. You've heard it a thousand times, haven't you? The elites, the liberals, the secularists are trying to destroy Christianity. They took God out of the schools. But let me tell you that in no uncertain terms, let me tell you in no uncertain terms, that no one has taken God out of the schools, nor could such a thing ever be accomplished. Take God out of the schools? Not if God is in the hearts of school children. And it is the job of the church to put God in the hearts of school children, not the public schools. Removing mandated prayer could not possibly remove God from the schools. It just removes the state's sponsorship of religion. And in the loudest, most religious parts of the country, it's almost a given that this means the sponsorship of Christianity. I mean, can anyone even imagine a school board, especially in one of the southern states, defending the right of a Muslim teacher to begin class with with an Islamic call to prayer? What if the teacher was an atheist or a Wiccan or a Satanist? You see, the legacy of Constantine is still with us. The pressures, overt and subtle, to put the stamp of state approval on the church. The battle over school prayer is not a battle in defense of the freedom of religion. It has always been about a defense of state-sponsored Christianity. And that may be good for elected officials who are pandering for the conservative Christian vote, but it is not good for the cause of Christ, which will always demand prayer as a discipline of personal commitment, not as a mandated institutional formality. One pastor said, and I've told you this many, many times, he was raised believing that being a good Christian and a good American are the same thing. They are not the same thing. 
but so enmeshed has our religion become with our patriotism that it is difficult to see the church ever voluntarily throwing off Constantine, that is, the support and the comfort of the civil religion that the church now enjoys. Maybe only a crisis could do that for us. And the church is in crisis today. It has been coming for a long time with the change in our culture and an 18-month shutdown due to a global viral pandemic has only accelerated that trajectory. But the church, the institution, will not die. The institutional church in some form will always be with us. And please understand that I have as much to lose in this change as anyone, as one whose profession and livelihood is dependent on the institutional church. I have as much to lose as anyone, so I understand the anxiety. But we must remember our calling. It's commitment, not comfort. The church was not called to be the easy default way of the culture. The church was called to challenge and to change the culture. Christians were not called to blend in, becoming invisible in a sea of homogenous citizens, all Christian because the culture is Christian. Jesus called his followers to stand up, to stand out. The word church literally means the ones who are called out. Nowhere does scripture envision the people of faith being a moral majority to pick a bone with the late Jerry Falwell Sr. Quite to the contrary, Scripture sees the church as the faithful few, the courageously committed, the martyred minority. Now, someone said you should never waste a good crisis, so here is the challenge before us. The church needs faithful Christian to be faithful and Christian to recognize the difference in allegiance to God and allegiance to the culture or any political party, to choose the way of Jesus, not because it makes life easy, it does not make life easy, but because dying really is the only way that leads to life. Because of the crisis, the church will be smaller in the future, I have no doubt about that, it need not be less powerful. It will be less part of the cultural power structure. It need not be less prophetic. It will be less assumed. It need not be less effective. So today, as we continue through this cultural crisis, Park Road Baptist Church, part of the Church of Jesus Christ, needs you. Your church needs you to make a commitment, to choose church in this culture, this church, to give, to show up, to recognize that doing so more and more in a secular culture will make you stand out, not fit in. After 1,700 years, the coronavirus may be giving us a chance to finally throw off the shackles of Constantine and to return to the radical challenge of Jesus. And that challenge is a good cause. Let's not waste a good crisis. The church is called to die.
may it be so. Amen.